Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. All right, and we're back at CBS Eye on Veterans, which is powered by ConnectingVets.com, the military veteran news and lifestyle website. I'm reporter and Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, it doesn't have to be May for this show to focus on mental health. In fact, throughout the entire year, I'm always looking to highlight things that help our vets with any type of mental health issue. Whether it's depression, anxiety, PTSD, or TBIs, I love looking at the treatment methods that are working, and especially those that most people in the medical community consider, air quotes, alternative. Now today we're going to dive into another case of horrible PTSD being successfully treated by hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And although hyperbaric oxygen is not a new thing, it's a type of treatment that's not widely used. And after you hear our guest today, you'll be wondering why. Retired Army Colonel Andy Smith proudly served our country from 1975 until 2007. Throughout his three decades of service, he was led into some violent and deadly areas around the world. And as we'll hear, this trauma affected him both day and night. Smith, like so many veterans, kept his PTSD hidden. Once he and his wife retired to one of the biggest retirement communities in the country, the Villages near Orlando, Florida, he eventually began receiving hyperbaric oxygen treatment at the Aviv clinics. Today we'll hear how hyperbaric oxygen treatment radically changed his life and how hyperbaric oxygen shows effectiveness for PTSD, stroke, depression, Lyme disease, and more. So with that, I um, want to say hi to Dr. Mo Elamir from Eve Clinics. How are you, sir? I'm well. How are you, Phil? Really good. Really good. And Colonel Smith, how the hell are you? Well, glad to be here. Excited to talk to you guys both. And we'll kind of go back and forth with this conversation. I don't have a whole lot scripted. I don't have a whole lot framed out about what direction I want to take this. But I want to unpack your story, Colonel. And then as we get into the medical part of it, I want to hear from you, Doc, on 
you know, kind of what this is and really why this works so well, because I have on this show alone had two or three different cases of hyperbaric oxygen patients whose lives, whose lives have been changed. I mean, radically altered by this treatment that seems so simple oxygen. So before we get into the, you know, how it works and why it works, um, let's dive in with you, Colonel. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about your service and, uh, you know, just sort of unpack your story with me. Okay. Well, uh, uh, I'm originally from Kennesaw, Georgia, which is a suburb north of Atlanta. Uh, I enlisted in the Coast Guard in 1975 until I shipped over to the Army in 1980. Uh, I was commissioned as second lieutenant in the Army. And uh, started off with my first three years living behind the Iron Curtain in West Berlin. After that, I was reassigned back to the States, various assignments there. In 1995, I was called up to go uh, be part of the peacekeeping force in Bosnia. That was the first time I saw trench lines and minefields everywhere. That was an eye-opening experience. Uh, Then in 1999, I was in a uh, specialized unit, and I was called to go to a little island northwest of Australia called East Timor which had just regained its independence from Indonesia in 1999. Uh, They were pretty much uh, hacking each other up with machetes uh, on that one. was there for a little while, came back to the States, and then finally my last overseas assignment was uh, in Afghanistan in 2006 in Kabul. And that's fascinating that you point out just over, you know, that wide swath of time there. Uh, You cited two areas that I've personally talked to some veterans from Bosnia, and You know, we just look at them as blips in the historical radar. You know, most folks, it barely registers that, you know, between the Croats and the Bosnians and the Slobodan Milosevic era and the war crimes. I mean, unless you were intel, unless you were, uh, you know, maybe kind of a specialized elite force, you may have never even seen that area. But from the ones I've talked to that were there, it's hellish. And a lot of times before the global war on terrorism, that's about the only time the the U.S. military was called upon to go do something was with a small force, a small team. You know, I'm talking to the Special Operations Command. I'm talking to my special forces brothers out there, uh, you know, Africa. Uh, There are missions going on in remote parts of the world right now that definitely show you the worst side of evil. And it was happening long before the global war on terrorism. And it's the men and women of the military that have to stand tall. And go defend that sometimes. Most of our citizens don't understand or know that at any given time, the United States military in some form is in 114 countries around this world. 114. That's an average. It goes up and down from there. And they're all doing different things. Sometimes they may be going to Guatemala to veterinarians to you know inoculate the cattle. Uh, other times uh, it's in Central Africa fighting communist rebels, you know, with special forces. We're just all over the place all of the time. A heavy load to carry. Talk to me a little bit about the load you carried in Kabul there. Uh, you talk about maybe kind of the end of the career path there, winding it, up in Afghanistan. Um, what kind of things did you experience there? Because I imagine similar to Bosnia and some of the other issues that you saw there off Australia. Um, was that some tough stuff to see? All of them were tough to see. You know, the the, the hardest things for me to always see uh, in any of the uh, deployments I was on was the effect upon children. That really tore me up, especially in East Timor, because there's just some beautiful children there. Uh, my job, though, uh, I was the director of logistics, uh, known as the CJ4, uh, for the command. So I was the senior level logistician for the uh, coalition in Afghanistan. So I, in that case, was mostly a desk jockey. 
Okay, it's got to be honest about that. Now, did I hear firing gunshots and get rocketed? Yeah, you know, when you hear a loud bang outside your hooch at uh, three o'clock in the morning, you kind of wonder what that is. Uh, and it's, uh, again, eye-opening. Uh, but in Afghanistan, again, uh, to see the subjugation of women having to wear burqas, uh, just little girls being abused, uh, little boys being abused, and really that's their culture. You have to show restraint. It's their country. Roger that. And from, you know, from my warfighter brothers and sisters that have spent a lot of time over there on the fobs too, it's, it's mm-hmm. even if you're in a logistical, you know, position or you're Intel and you spend, you know, you spend all day in the talk there and you're, and you're, uh, you know, there in the secure space, you can't help but feel the toll that it takes, you know, when a platoon comes back and the heads are down and you know, something went down on that mission outside the wire. And when the morale is just feeling the pain of losing, you know, one of our comrades, um, that ripple effects through the whole fob, I can imagine. It absolutely does. It's, it's, it's a, uh, often used term called survivor guilt. You know, you, 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 you know, especially as a leader, as a senior officer, you, you have to formulate these plans. You have to come up with the, the, the actions that are that are necessary. And then you have to tell a 19 year old to go do it. You know, you know, I had kids that age. You know, and I, I look at them like they're my own kids. And it, oftentimes that's how we refer to, to, to these fantastic young men and women that, that wear our uniform. They're, they're, they're kids, but they're old. When you look in their eyes after they come back from some of this stuff, that's the hardest part. It's certainly the hangover of the GWAT era that we are just now entering into. And, you know, dare I say for the last 20 years, we've been inching our way into this, but now we're into this. It's, it, you know, it's wound down. And um, now is when we're starting to feel the pains. Now is when the hangover really starts to ramp up. And now more than any time ever is when these hyperbaric oxygen therapies, uh, therapies like this and the modalities that help mental health are critical to discuss. Uh, as we get into the discussion there, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you were noticing now, uh, retired. Feeling good. Uh, you say the word, the villages, you know, as we shared, uh, you know, my friends, you know, my friend's father lo- loves it down there. He's got him a Corvette, loves to golf, and he's living the good life with the beautiful people in the villages. But behind that, you were experiencing something pretty unbearable. Share with it, me that. You have to keep in mind that that PTSD is, is cumulative. It's not just one event. It, it's your life. Okay. What happened to you when? And then when it happened to you again or something else uh, of a traumatic nature happened to you later on. And it all builds up and it doesn't go away. My case of PTSD was mild, but you know, my wife, my wife would say I would whimper in my sleep. Uh, I knew I had vivid, terrible dreams quite often in social settings. Uh, my oldest son would like me to go to the theater with him. I just couldn't stand to be that enclosed with that many people around me. You know, I had to know where all the exits were, how, how, how I could get out of there quickly. Uh, loud noises. I would just about jump out of my skin, you know, but that's me. You know, every other veteran carries it their, their own way. Okay. And in my case, uh, I came down here to relax, you know, make new friends, have, have the good life. But the effects just, they don't go away by themselves. They're still there, you know, and the, you, you either go to the VA where they medicate you or you self-medicate with alcohol or whatever you can get your hands on. And there you go. You're in a spiral. And quite honestly, 
It's a wonderful life here in the villages. But if you don't keep busy, sometimes you have too much time to think. Well said. When it first started to show up, when these things that you'd probably gotten used to, you know, some dreams, uh, oh, this uh, started sleeplessness. Back, this started back in the mid-80s. Okay. So all through your career, you were sort of back pocketing these things, filing them away, thinking, oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to suppress that. That's not a, you know, that's nothing more than just, you know, indigestion. I'm having a bad dream. I, yeah. But did, did you know in the back of your mind or suspect that this was really symptoms of a mental health condition? I did not because I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know what was happening to me. All I know is that uh, I, I would wake up from a terrible dream and my bed would be absolutely sweat soaked through. Uh, and you know, my, my wife would look at me and say, what is wrong with you? You know, and then it goes, you know, ebbs and flows, you know, I guess it all depends on the stress level at the time, but you know, there were events along the way. I mean, uh, when I originally was in the coast guard, I remember the first time I had to help recover a body from the water when you're 18 years old, that's kind of a vivid thing to you. Uh, again, in the uh, mid eighties, I came across a, uh, training accident. Uh, where a young soldier was pinned under a dump truck. And I just kind of sat there with him until he was gone. And he's still with me. He always will be. God bless him. Uh, that's just a couple of events. I I never pulled the trigger in anger. I got to be you know honest about that. I never had to uh, take point on that patrol. So those kids really need the help. In your initial treatment, mm-hmm. I guess, path, um, naturally as a veteran, you know, we go to VA. What was your experience like? What did the VA initially want to treat this as, or what did therapists, what did your initial journey look like there? Initially, they didn't want a treatment. As I said, my first diagnosis was, oh yes, you have PTSD, but you know, I can't fully say that, uh, uh, you got it from your military service. Well, you know, the, the VA, you have an appeals process and I decided I wasn't going to give up. And I went back again. And the next time I, with a, with a different uh, uh, medical professional, you know, I started asking him questions. So before you ask me, I'm asking you. Okay. Then he became a very strong advocate uh, for my case. Uh, he wrote it up. And, uh, oh, wow, I was uh, given a whole 10% disability for it and offered meds if I really wanted it. Mm. They love to hand out the candy, don't they? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think the mind-blowing thing to the civilian audience listening to our conversation is that the VA is, a you know, again, I don't want to throw shade at the VA. I know that, you know, oftentimes they're doing God's work there. And they are, I mean, their mission is to help the warfighter recover from wounds. But so often I hear, you know, somebody can, in a clinical setting, look at you and go, yeah, well, you have something. But I don't know if I can connect it to your military service. I mean, I, I don't think the civilian audience understands strongly enough that like in the VA process, you can be diagnosed with a problem, but they can't help you because they're unwilling to admit that it emanates from the service connection. And that to me is the most frustrating thing for those individuals trying to recoup, recover and get better from these illnesses. Yes, and and uh, and I tell you, who in my opinion got it got it the worst is our uh, Vietnam era veterans, because uh, they were just disrespected at home, uh, disrespected overseas. Uh, they came home. Uh, even veteran service organizations initially didn't want them. 
you know, these guys were just, hi, you're off the airplane. Here's your discharge. See you later. Have a good life. Uh, fortunately, you know, uh, post that when I came in, uh, the services have done a lot better. They do try to do a whole lot of things with, uh, with, uh, every service member as they're getting ready to separate. I hope, I hope you had the opportunity to speak with some representatives about your VA rights and your, and your, VA privileges and everything, you know, but most young guys, eh, you know, off the go. They came in for six years of service and they were deployed three and a half years of those, you know, and they're just burned out. We've got a future big problem on our hands uh, because this is the longest war in American history. And uh, we're going to be carrying this a long time. Yeah, and that actually speaks to where I want to go next. Um, Dr. Mohammed Elamir of the Aviv Clinics in Florida, share with me a little bit about the makeup of these injuries. Now, I know for at least when you look at the VA and a lot of these different medical groups, uh, they say, okay, if you've had a TBI, if you've had a real knock to the head, you know, a breaching explosion, an injury falling off something, something falling on you, a concussive event, you know, naturally they can say, oh, well, that concussive event, Plus what you're experiencing now, that service connection. But as Colonel Smith just described, witnessing death, witnessing some un, just unnatural situations that hurt your heart and soul. Are those equally damaging to the brain? Is it that we have just not accepted the fact that like seeing some horrific can really give you a condition? Yeah, that's the, that's the point right there. You know, often we, we can easily treat the wounds that we see on our legs or our arms, or even if there's trauma, physical trauma to the brain, we can make sense that that can cause injury to the brain itself. But seeing and going through a traumatic event equally causes damage to the brain. And now we have methods to measure it and actually see it on specific scans. When we do a scan on, on a veteran or anybody that's gone through a significant traumatic event and has PTSD, when we look at the metabolic changes in their brain, it's very similar to the metabolic changes of somebody who got literally hit on the head with a rifle, a gun, a bat, a helmet. Uh, and it's equally as damaging and consequential. That's amazing. So to your brain, a really horrific experience is the equivalent of a car crash, whether or not it was a physical injury or not. Dang. Correct. Absolutely. And then, you know, that's, we have a saying here, the wound in the brain is very similar to the wound in the foot, for example, because hyperbarics has been around for hundreds of years. We typically treat wounds like diabetic foot wounds or wounds that won't heal on the legs. But you just use that same principle. And as long as you can see those wounds in the brain, and now we can, we treat them the same way. What is the scan showing in like layman's terms? I I've seen this before and I've seen, you know, the like red and orange healthy brain. And then there's like the bluish colored brain and, and, and the shapes are different. What am I seeing when I'm looking at a brain scan of somebody that has endured something either physically or mentally that has resulted in PTSD? Sure. So the, the type of scans, we have two different scans, a specialized MRI and a CAT scan called a SPECT scan. S-P-E-C-T. SPEC scans look at the metabolic changes, basically how functional your cells in the brain are. And those color changes can represent damaged tissue as decreased metabolic function, decreased ability to do its job. 
And when that happens in specific parts of the brain, that can lead to sleep issues, concentration issues, personality changes. The brain is a roadmap. And if you see damage in specific parts of that map, that can tell you what to expect clinically in that person. And is it fair to say that like most often we just look at maybe personality changes or changes in our preferences or tastes like the Colonel described, didn't like being in crowded areas. Do many people just misdiagnose that and think, Oh, I'm just getting old or I just need a beer lighten up. Hey, here, have another whiskey. That's absolutely right. Your behaviors on the outside usually represent changes that are happening to the brain on the inside. So if it's anger or if it's forgetfulness, um, or if it's mood swings, whatever it is, more than likely there's a change in the brain responsible for it. Mm. And I want to reach a little deeper than even the veteran experience here with you for just a hot second. Cause I read something this morning that I wanted to bring up in this interview and uh, it was New York times talking about, uh, I, I guess they were saying it was a, it was related to sleep, but they're saying less sleep, less happiness, but they were then saying that like it's being evidenced in the rise in teen depression and teen suicide. And I'm trying to think of all these like, you know, mental health issues and this PTSD and these traumatic things that the brain can experience. How is it that teens, is it that teens could be literally having PTSD from their social experiences heightened by social media right now in a way that teens of previous generations never had? Is there really truth to that? That like just by being on Insta and Facebook and hurting themselves visually with this, uh, the way they communicate and sometimes the way they interact and are crappy to each other. Is that similarly doing to their brains what some of the warfighters are experiencing? Yeah, and in their case, it's, it's twofold. Um, there's the psychological effects of being on social media and being in those harmful you know, environments digitally that can cause changes to the brain. Um, but also their sleep quality is hindered because they're constantly on whatever, a tablet, a phone, a TV, computer, that blue light constantly will affect their sleep cycles. So if they're not getting not just the amount of hours of sleep, but the quality of sleep, that will also cause physiologic changes to the brain, which can lead to depression and suicide and other detrimental things. Holy cow, the blue light. So even if it's not bullying, even if it's not, you know, uncomfortable, hateful experiences online, just taking in the light through the eyeball is jacking them up. That is, wow, that's crazy. Uh, let's move back to Colonel Smith real quick now and talk about uh, what was it that made you, you know, one, discover Dr. Mo, the Aviv clinics there in the villages in Florida. I, how was it you came upon hyperbaric oxygen? Because I've known, you know, my warfighter buddies and especially my wounded combat vets, you know, their first path was a bottle of pills followed by, you know, take your pick, Jack, Jim, Jose, uh, you know, one of them. The booze and the pills seem to be first. How was it you ventured to find hyperbaric oxygen? Because it's not everywhere you look. Well, we're really, really fortunate here in the villages that this is the flagship of the Aviv clinics. Uh, they got here. Uh, they got here in uh, 2020, right as COVID hit, uh, which was unfortunate for them. Uh, but they have done a very good uh, uh, information plan. I won't call it marketing. I'll call it more information uh, uh, in the local media, especially here in the villages, of course, you know, this is an, an aging population, you know, and uh, the, the first avenue that they uh, uh, piqued my interest was uh, healthy living, healthy aging, uh, which is 
part of the program. And my wife actually started looking at this and I'm going like, yeah, right, whatever. Um, and uh, she went to one of the seminars uh, given by the, uh, the dietitian and she really enjoyed it. And she says, hey, uh, they're going to have some more of these little seminars, one of which is uh, on PTSD led by uh, Dr. Moe's colleague, uh, Dr. Roger Miller. So I said, okay, okay, okay. She drugged me into this thing and I'm doing this early that, you know, leaning back. Okay, talk to me. You know, and it was a, it was a, about an hour and a half of very, very interesting discussion. Uh, so after that, uh, uh, met with other members of the of the Aviv family, and that's what I'll call them. Uh, was fortunate to meet uh, the, the the pioneer, Dr. Shai Afradi, uh, who talked to me in a very blunt, you know, veteran to veteran way, and uh, he said he could help me. I took him at his word, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was an amazing experience. I went in skeptical, you know, career soldier. Of course, you're going to be skeptical. Um, and uh, uh, Doctor Mo warned me I was going to have vivid dreams. I was going to have memories brought up from where they've been buried for twenty or thirty years. They they told me this was going to happen, and everything they said that was going to happen actually did happen you know, physically to me. But as time went on, I just started feeling better. You know, uh, crowds don't bother me so much anymore. You know, I still get some really bizarre dreams at night, but you know what? I'm not waking up in a pool of sweat. Uh, so again, went into this initially, you know, skeptical, you know, was going to do it with my wife because she wanted to do it for the healthy aging. And my wife is a veteran of 20 years also uh, in the Army. Uh, and it's like, okay, we'll go through this. Uh, but but uh, uh, Dr. Mo and the rest of his staff, you know, crafted a, a program specifically for me, not cookie cutter, not not in the box. It's like, okay, Andy needs this. And, you know, uh, he showed me my spec scan at the beginning, said, yeah, you've got damage right here. I can see these spots. You, you, you've had trauma. And then, you know, you know 16 weeks later, bring it back up again. Look, look, look at these areas that improved. It was, it was dramatic. I mean, uh, everybody's else results may vary, uh, but uh, I had pretty dramatic results. And, uh, hey, just, I feel better. I'm not, not quite as surly with my, with my wife and my sons, you know. Uh, you know, you have to keep the image up somewhat, but. No, yeah, um, no, no doubt. A career army colonel, you're always going to be a little bit salty. I get you. <laughs> um, Dr. Mo, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how it works. Um, you know, I've heard over the years, uh, you know, from psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, sitting in the chair and going over endless hours of your experiences and then having them reframe those memories with you through long conversations and then more medication. And uh, it's a process that could take years to really fully unpack. And then there's hyperbaric oxygen, which to me looks like the space age cat scan kind of thing where they lay you down in a tube and shove you in a cylinder. And the next thing you're pumped full of O2 and you levitate for a few hours and then they take you out or something. Um, walk with me through the process and what it's doing, why it is different than the behavioral therapy that a psychiatrist would give you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
before I go into the, the main differences of our hyperbaric treatment versus what you just described with the cylinder, um, as Andy put it, our program isn't cookie cutter. You know, we need to first identify those wounds in the brain and identify those symptoms, and not just neurologically, but physiologically, cardiovascularly. You mentioned the dietitian. Um, so everybody goes through our assessment process. It's up to three days of testing, involves all the advanced imaging of the brain. Um, we go through a full medical exam, blood work, um, cardiovascular testing. The physiology team will run you through literally the, the ringer with the uh, treadmill, cardiac testing, and, uh, body composition, uh, genetic analysis, because the same diet for you might not work for Andy or for me. Um, so your genetics can help us pinpoint, okay, what should you be eating? What should you be working on? How you should be doing? So it really is very interdisciplinary you know, with the whole team approach, but it's individualized to the, the, the client and the you know, soldier and the patient. So that way, by the end of the testing, we sit down together and just like Andy described, I will show you your brain, identify all those areas and as well as all the other analysis and say, great, this is how we're going to help you. This is what we're going to target. Then we go into our treatment phase. Phase. And you mentioned cognitive behavior therapy could take years. Our treatment process is a 12-week treatment process. So it involves going inside our hyperbaric oxygen suites, as we call it. Um, this isn't your cylinder chamber that you, you lie down horizontal and get shoved in. This is a big, what we call a multi-place chamber. Up to 14 people can sit in it. Almost looks like a first-class airline cabin. Um, you know, we never fill it to capacity. We have you know, lots of space in there. Um, luxurious big seats with uh, tablets on them. And you're breathing 100% oxygen in a pressurized environment. Now, when I say pressurized environment, the only thing you feel for the first 10 minutes is a little bit of a popping sensation in your ears as we're building the pressure up slowly. Once we get to pressure and we go to 2.0 atmospheres of pressure, you're just sitting there. You're breathing the oxygen. You don't feel anything else. And our protocol is very specific because simplistically breathing 100% oxygen in a pressurized environment increases the concentration of oxygen 17 times higher. But that's only while you have the mask on. And what we do is we fluctuate. You have the mask on for 20 minutes and you take the mask off for five minutes, back and forth. That fluctuation gets your body to be tricked, so to speak. When the oxygen is high, it gets oxygen to the cells that need it. When you take the mask off, the oxygen level inside the hyperbaric suite is normal concentrations, 21%, just like we're breathing now. But the body interprets that normal oxygen as a low oxygen state, tricking it to go into repair mode, releasing new stem cells, producing new blood vessels, making new connections. So we're tricking the body to start repairing itself by doing this fluctuation protocol. So you get the benefit of traditional hyperbarics, high oxygen, getting to the cells that need it, but the key to our program versus another one is the ability to fluctuate those oxygen levels. And you really can do that with this multi-place hyperbaric suite and this protocol. Wow, that's fascinating. And it's also similar to, uh, I, I think for people that aren't familiar at all with hyperbaric oxygen, um, there has been for years the way they treat like a wound, like an individual burn wound or an individual wounded part of the, you know, an, like an extremity by immersing it into a, some kind of container that's pumping all this oxygen. This is the same thing as it would do for that wound on an appendage only by inhaling it and getting it to flow into your brain. Right. Right. And, and sometimes people with those wounds in the, in the extremities will go into these big chambers as well and breathe it in. 
um, at the same time, getting the oxygen to the wound to help it heal. Um, you know, this technology has been around for hundreds of years. The, the, the newest technique that we're employing has only been around for about 15 years. We're figuring out that, hey, when the body responds to those fluctuations, you capitalize on a whole extra set of healing properties, not just getting the oxygen to the cells that need it, but the ability to regenerate new tissue. Um, and when we apply it to the brain, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to repair the damaged cells that we see. We're trying to build new blood vessels to help get blood to the brain. We're helping produce stem cells, blank cells that can become any cell we want them to be, um, and get them to be produced and help repair those parts of the brain and the body that need it. Mm. And why isn't this more widely used across the country? Uh, you know, you watch any hour of TV and there's at least four ads for drugs. <laughs> um, you go to any doctor and very rarely do you hear something non-traditional. You know, I've never had a doctor talk to me about oxygen, never had a doctor ever recommend cannabis, never had a doctor ever sort of recommend any sort of uh, other things. Uh, the VA seems to say, okay, we'll refer some alternative treatments. You know, how about you take a painting class, Colonel? Maybe you should go out in the woods and, you know, sit around a campfire and bang some bongo drums. I mean, these are all great things and great experiential things. But this oxygen seems deeply rooted in science. The very things you just described with releasing other sorts of stem cells and programmable cells by 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 taking in the excess amounts of oxygen. Why in the hell isn't this as prolific as subway in america <laughs> well we just have we get a, we need a good spokesperson i guess to get subway out. <laughs> um you know it's a good question like i said hyperbarics has been around for years but this new protocol and the, the research that has gone into proving healing the brain in a specific way and the technology to diagnose ptsd before ptsd as you know is just a, a psychiatric condition now we prove that it's a neurological physiologic change in the brain so the technology to assess it is relatively new and our research is also you know 15 years of research sounds like a lot but in the grand scheme to get it widely adopted by everybody it's still in the beginning stages we're confident with our studies and other people's studies as well that we produce it but the, the results are there andy is a living testament to what the program can do um, and it's just a matter of getting the word out like you're doing right now with your listeners um, and we are always publishing more and more studies, working with different groups to get the education out there. Right on. Um, not to go into a rabbit hole, but is there any, is there any thoughts or suspicions that pharma doesn't want this because you can't patent oxygen? I mean, is there, I mean, is that a possibility? You know, I'm a board certified internal medicine physician. So I used to see patients on a primary care basis and I had a huge patient population and um, you know, yes, I used to get visited by pharma reps all the time and, you know, those kind of things. Uh, you know, when it comes to this technology, I knew about hyperbarics for wounds, but I didn't quite know that it could be applied in this specific protocol. You know, even six years ago when I was practicing, I didn't know it could be used for this. And when I interviewed for the job and I heard about it, um, you know, Dr. Afradi, who, who Andy met, he told me his main motivation is not to make this a proprietary protocol. He wants everybody to know about this protocol, know how to do it, be able to replicate it, um, and everybody should have access to this. So our company, that's our philosophy. We want everybody a chance to, to be able to do it, replicate it. 
we're going to do it the best because we have the best people working here and Andy being here every day can, can attest to that. Um, but this is going to be out there, whether they like it or not. And then as people get peeled more and more, it'll be widely adopted. All right. Well, you hear that big pharma? It's going to be there whether you like it or not. And uh, the charge is being led, uh, you know, by the professionals, especially down there at the Aviv clinics in Florida. Uh, let's go ahead and stick the landing here. Colonel Smith, kind of compare and contrast the before and after. How are you feeling now? What, what moment was it that you really said, aha, this is working. I'm really feeling different. And describe the difference in how you feel sort of post-treatment. Here's a, a very, very small example. You know, sometimes when you're trying to log into a bank account or a credit card account or something like that, or some other you know, two method you know, uh, 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 validation, and they say, okay, we're going to text you this number. Okay. Well, beforehand, and say, okay, what's the first two digits? Dot, dot. Okay. The, let me go back next, next to dot, dot. Now I'll look at it. I got all six numbers. I type it in and I'm gone. Okay. I know that's a small thing, but but it is significant. It, it's a 12-week program, five days a week. So it's a gradual process. It, it's, it's not a, hey, there we are. But uh, at the end of, the, end of the, the protocol for me, I was happier. Uh, I was enjoying myself more. I wasn't quite as irritable. Uh, I had started cutting back on my alcohol consumption significantly and so uh there's little things like that you know and just having more fun out of life and not you know worrying about something that jump up out of your past to bother you it's still there but it doesn't bother you so much anymore because that part of my brain is now getting the oxygen it needs um and keep in mind this this, this program is not just the oxygen it's a, a holistic approach. It, 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 it's physical, it's mental, it's dietary. And, and, and you know, the action is, is, is on you to embrace the program. It's a significant inv- investment in your time and your resources. So, you know, you get what you, you know, like I always said about in the military, you only get out of it what you put into it. And, it, you know, I embraced the program. My wife and I went through it together, sat side by side throughout this entire uh, the, uh, the entire protocol, and uh, we both came out feeling just—it's uh, hard to ex- explain. We feel younger. How's that for a turn? Well, I mean, I don't want to speak for her, but I'm sure that makes your wife happy too. <laughs> Nothing wrong with feeling a little bit younger, if you know what I mean. That's absolutely wonderful. Uh, do you find just like if you look back at yourself, say a year ago, or like pre-treatment, mm-hmm. uh, can you notice moments when, like, normally that's when that's when Colonel Smith would fly off the handle and get mad. And now you don't do that. That's when Colonel Smith might just retreat back to his room and be sad. And you don't do that anymore. Are are, are you seeing individual emotions just completely turned down a little bit because they're not, uh, they're not as visceral. They, they, they don't impact you as much as they used to. The sign curve of how you feel has gone from large peaks and valleys to smaller ones. Okay. Uh, that's just one way I can, I, I can describe it. You, you feel better. You feel better about yourself. Uh, you're able to handle a stressful situation a little bit better because your brain is now expanded again and you're not just reacting. You can process better. 
uh, at least in my case, you know, I embraced the program uh, and uh, I went in there and wanted to get everything out of it. And uh, I think I did. Outstanding. God bless you, Colonel. I'm glad to hear you're doing so well down there. And uh, you got some great weather too there in the villages, usually some bright blue, sunny skies. And it sounds to me like you're able to embrace them all. Thanks to your experience with the Aviv clinics, Dr. Muhammad El-Amir. Appreciate you breaking it down for me and letting us learn a little bit more during this mental health month about how hyperbaric oxygen therapy can really heal the brain. And um, I especially like the part about the chamber being a, a room where multiple people can sit and, uh, uh, the fact that the chairs sound more comfortable than the pressurized cabin of an airplane is something that I, you know, I can envision because I just got off a plane a few days ago. And let me tell you, <laughs> I, I did not feel comfortable after sitting in that seat for five and a half hours. I'm glad you guys got it dialed in down there at the Aviv clinics. So uh, thank you very much. Where can I learn more about your work there? Yeah, absolutely. Aviv-clinics.com um, is our website and you can contact us through there. You can see our studies. Um, you can see some testimonials as well. Um, and all of our information is there at aviv-clinics.com. All right. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Glad to have you on Eye on Veterans. Thanks. Thank you, Phil. Now that's where we'll leave it for this week. I want to thank retired Army Colonel Andy Smith for sharing his story and Dr. Mo Elamir. Now, if you or anyone you know has experienced a trauma, be it physical or emotional, as we've heard today, there could easily be the beginning of some mental health-related issues. And I encourage everyone in this position to seek out and find more information about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And if you want to speak with Dr. Elamir and find the Aviv Clinics, you can go to aviv-clinics.com. I'm Phil Briggs for ConnectingVets.com, and I'll be back again next week with more great stories from our great military vets on CBS Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. 
He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.